welcome to a second chance personal stories of near-death experiences the journey and beyond for the most positive and uplifting time on the radio stay tuned and get in tune with your host gina kane of second chance radio hello thank you for tuning in to a second chance today's interview is with martin bailey an amazing photographer who shares his experience of surviving a brain tumor it's the longest yet at nearly an hour and I definitely think it's worth the time to hear his amazing story. Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us. Today, I have with me Martin Bailey, who is a nature and wildlife photographer. He is born and raised in England and is now in Japan, Tokyo. I first came across Martin listening to his podcast interviewing David Dushiman, who has a great book that I would like everybody to know about, A Beautiful Anarchy. Today, we're going to jump into Martin Bailey's story. Martin, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks very much for, for asking me to come on, Gina. It's, it's a pleasure. Oh, I'm so thrilled to talk with you, and I would love if you could start to tell us a little bit about yourself so our guests can get to know you. Yeah, sure. Um, well, as you say, I, I'm a photographer. I'm born in England, you can tell by the accent, um, but I, uh, I moved to Japan when I was 24, which is like, geez, a long time, 23 years ago now. Um, and I, uh, I started working, I've done various jobs over the years, but I, I got into IT as that started to bloom and I went back to college over here and then started working for a, a company here in Tokyo in te- about 13, 14 years ago now. Um, but then decided having spent so much of my life uh, devoted to my, my main passion photography, I decided to basically throw in the, uh, the main the main job uh, that was four years ago now just coming up to four years ago and I started my own photography company and I'd already been doing uh, workshops and tours and things like that and actually making a part of my living from photography for the, for three or four years before that but I just decided to to throw that in and um, went off to make my uh, make my, my living as a photographer and there, that's basically taken me all around the world, um, but it's also included in the in the very first year. I think seven months after I uh, did, left my old job, uh, we found the we found the brain tumor that we'll be talking about today. So you were already a photographer entrepreneur on your own when this all started. Yes. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that journey. I had just thought you'd always been a photographer as. Your website is just so fantastic, and you clearly have such a big following of fans. Uh, well, thanks. But now, I mean, I, I've I've been a photographer, as in, you know, I've I've been doing photography since almost thirty years now. Um, so it's just that I it wasn't my main source of income until four years ago. So, and and I'd already built a lot of the following before that. So I I basically hit the ground running. Oh, very nice. One day. I would love to hear you interviewed on the entrepreneur side of life. Yeah, but let's do that. Yeah. Until then, you told us you discovered the tumor. Tell us about your experience. So I, I one of the reasons, um, apart from the fact that I just love photography and, and wanted to really pursue my passion, one of the reasons that I jumped in uh, the deep end in, uh, I think it was August uh, 2010, one of the reasons that I actually made the decision to leave at that point was because I'd actually booked to do a, a workshop and tour in Antarctica at the beginning of 2011. And I, I basically wasn't going to have enough leave left from my main job to do that, in addition to the other tours that I was doing each year. So I took the plunge and was basically, I had a, a couple of weeks down in Antarctica. Um, that in itself is, is almost life changing. But then on the way back, the the last few days of the expedition on on a ship, we were heading heading into Patagonia. I started to have these little I call them fits. Um, you know, the little um, what happened was I, I had I'd be say laying on my bunk in the in the ship, and there'd be like a pop behind my nose, and then a a, a really concerning or disconcerting sensation as. It was like a firework exploding behind my nose and I had these tingles go um, down my chest and out each arm and down each leg and then I'd get a, a really strong nausea, nausea feeling um, for about 30 seconds to a minute 
and then it went away. And I, this happened like 20 times in the first day. And it, they started and they just kept coming back every time I, I'd get off the ship to go and uh, we, we, you know, we docked and had a little time to, to go out into the town to, to do some photography. And I, I got my gear, got off the ship, and this started to happen again. And I just had to go back to my bunk. I couldn't even leave the ship. Um, so I asked the ship's doctor, and she said, that, have you banged your head? You know, I knew that it was obviously something to do with my brain. And I said, no, not that, I'm, not that I can recall. She said, okay, well, you know, let's just check, keep an eye on it. And then over the following three days, um, it happened gradually less and less. I, it happened, I think, ten times the day after, then five the day after that, and then stopped. So by the time I got back to Japan, about four days after the first fit, I'd, they'd, they'd completely stopped. So although it was very disconcerting, I didn't do anything about it. And then hmm. about three months, just coming up to three months later in June, uh, yeah, in June that year, I was just sitting there on, on the sofa on a Sunday afternoon and the same thing happened again. It was pop, fizz and really, con uh, you know, disconcerting feeling. And I, I've got a, a wonderful friend, a doctor in Australia, and I immediately sent him an email and he mm -hmm. just explained the symptoms to him. And he, he said, Martin, tomorrow morning, the first thing you do is after you get up and get, have your breakfast is jump in your car, go and um, go and see a doctor. Uh, you need a, you need a, at least a CAT scan or, or a, if possible, an MRI. So we went to the local hospital, the biggest hospital near us, and with, with a huge smile on her face while looking at the CAT scan, um, the doctor turned and said to me, oh, you've got a brain tumor. <laughs> I, I sat there, uh, you know, the, to me, I'm, I'm thinking, okay, here we go. Um, my wife looked at me because this was the conversation was all in Japanese, but my wife looked at me oh my. and she, my, you know, my wife knows that I, I speak fluent Japanese, but she looked at me for a moment and she, she just in shock. She said, you understand what she just told you, don't you? And I said, yeah, of course, I've got a brain tumor. And I, I think I shocked, shocked them both with my calmness, but um, we were then re referred to a larger hospital that had an MRI so we could really get a look at what was happening. And we went there that afternoon, and the doctor there, basically, he, he did the same, you know, got the, got the, the MRI scan. And I went back the following week for the results. And this was literally, a, uh, I think it was seven or eight days afterwards, we went back for the results. And the, the doctor said, uh, you know, you're remarkably calm. How's, are you okay? And I, I said to him, you know what, I, there's not a lot I can do. I said, we've got to do the things that we're going to do. Um, you know, there's no point in getting, in getting all upset about it. Inside, I was reeling, but I, you know, I, it didn't, didn't really come out. And I, mm -hmm. so the, the funny thing, though, is that, that the, the, the night that that happened, um, you know, that I went back for the results, we'd, what we'd done is we'd, we'd found, it, found out what it was. We started to put plans in place to get it taken out. He was going to refer me to their, their main hospital in cent central Tokyo, which is like a, a very, very, um, astout, you know, it's, it's a, for the procedures that I was going to have, they're, they're world class. Um, and he, he said that, you know, we'd, got, we'd sorted it out. He was going to go and see the main doctor over at the hospital and we were going to get me routed through there. And I went home that day and I had what, by all accounts, seemed like a stroke. I was sitting in... I was sitting on the sofa with my laptop on my knee and all of a sudden I started to hit the wrong characters, the wrong keys. I wasn't, I'm normally blind type, blind touch type. So I, mm -hmm. I don't look at the keyboard, but all of a sudden everything I typed was, was crap, like coming out really cruddy. And I, uh, I turned to my wife and said, uh, something's wrong. And it sounded more like something's wrong. And, and I, I basically, all of the left side of my face had gone to sleep and it was my, my left arm had gone to sleep. And that's why I stopped the typing. Um, and we we realized that as I spoke, the uh, my left eye closed down. It sort of it went dark. It was really scary. Um, there was like a little tiny circle of light in the bottom right corner of my eye. Um, but basically, I mean, I was, I was having a stroke. And so the what had happened, based, you know, the, the tumor was growing behind my nose. It's, I think they call it a pituitinoma um, or a it's the protruding gland um it's a basically you know this nasty thing grows behind your nose but what had happened is 
it had sent a golf ball sized cyst up into the left side of my brain um, sorry right side of my brain and I so what what was happening was this was probably stopping the it got to the point where it, it was stopping the blood going through to certain places and it was it was causing mm-hmm. this nasty um, almost like a stroke um, but being a the idiot that I am I think okay so I'm, I'm pretty much having a stroke I'm, I can't see out of my left eye I'm going to be in hospital so I decided it would be a good time to actually run upstairs and grab some <coughs> grab some cables for my computer because I, I wasn't going to be able to get spend any time in hospital without my computer so as I was running around the house um, at first like hobbling around the house because my left leg had gone to sleep as well as I was doing this I, I think I dislodged whatever it was that was there um, my wife had obviously called the called an ambulance. We got an ambulance on the way, but I was getting ready to get in the ambulance, and and I dislodged whatever it was. And um, but by the time the ambulance got here, it was I was my sight was coming back, and I was starting to mm-hmm. and starting to feel okay. Um, but of course, you know that was that was very scary. So we jumped in the ambulance, and uh, they they admitted me to hospital. I went to the same hospital I'd been to that day initially. Um, they put me on some medication to stop my brain from swelling, and um, we we got the the surgery scheduled then for just over a week later. Went the first day that they could actually fit me in, um, wow. and so yeah, I transferred to the main hospital a few days later, and we just prepared for the for the surgery. Wow! So before you tell us about the surgery, I have to tell you something. Mm. I can relate to your story about the hospital. Mm. The last time I had to go, I had chest pains, mm. and before I was willing to leave the house, I needed to find my iPhone charger, <laughs> my notepad, my pen, and my book. Because terrible. one week in the hospital without that stuff is too long. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. I mean, but but you know, the thing is, I think that that I'm, I'm going to call it stupid because of myself, not of your experience. But you know, the, doing stupid stuff like that, I think, is is what help me to to get through it i think if i'd have done what a lot of people do and just lay down then the blood would have continued to be blocked so Mm -hmm. you know i'm not sure that that actually just getting really scared and and laying down and waiting for people to take care of you is is always the best option i could have just been it could have been dumb luck but you know it worked for me and i'm just curious before you jump to the next step Mm. it sounds like your wife was very supportive how was she doing through all of this with you Oh, she was um, she was incredible. You know, the I I still to this day every so often just turn. We're sitting on the sofa, and for no reason, I'll turn and thank her for everything that she did. Um, wow. You know, it, it was it was quite quite intense. She, um, you know, she, she's always been really supportive. She, I mean, she she even stuck with me as I decided that I was going to throw in a a job that would have kept us you know paid paid pretty well for life um and she stood by me through all of that she's always been a really really great person and um she you know she was just there all the time um the, the once we got into hospital my brother and his wife actually came from england and they they all three of them they would get up early every morning earlier than i ever used to get up to go to work even and they'd jump on a train and travel for an hour across tokyo in rush hour and just sit with me the whole day. Um, so it was, you know, the, my wife at that point was obviously having to look after two people at home and, <laughs> you know, the feeding and and uh, everything for two for two more people that she wouldn't have had. But she gets along really well with my. They don't, you know, she doesn't speak a lot of English, and my brother and his wife don't speak a lot of a lot of Japanese either. But you know, they they actually were really supportive of, of each other as they as as we sort of all thought fought through this. Oh wow. Can you tell us something in Japanese? I'd love to hear. Nani o kikitai. That's that's what that's that's what what do you what do you want me to say or what do you want to hear? What do I want to hear? Well, what I want to hear next is what happened when they booked your surgery. Yeah, so we I'd got a literally a, one of the the doctor that the neurosurgeon that was going to do the surgery. His name's Doctor Joki, um, and it sounds strange in English. Uh, his name actually means um, always happy. The, his, the two characters for his his um, name mean mm-hmm. uh, mean always happy, which I thought was a brilliant name. Um, he was going to do the, the procedure, and there was another another doctor that was. Um, the way they did it, they actually went in through my nose, but because I'd broken my nose as a kid, the there's like a plate that goes in 
from from your you know, your nose bone. I'm not sure what the what the proper word word is for it, like a plate that goes in from from your nose to the into the back. And I that was like it was concertinaed. It was it was like a, as you look at it from the top, it, it would look like a W, and it's supposed to be straight. And so they couldn't get the apparatus in. Um, despite me having a <laughs> relatively big nose, um, the the hole in there was too small. So they actually had to take that out and straighten that bone um, and then make a passage in through the back of my nose, uh, basically punch a hole into the to the brain sort of cavity. And so there was a, a nose, uh, like an ear, nose and throat doctor was going to be in with me as well. And so we had these big meetings to explain everything that was going to happen. And... Um, we, there's actually a funny story. I'll, I'll just throw this in as well. One afternoon, Dr. Jokey was in my room and my brother was there. And he's, he's just a laugh a minute. And we, we, we got to talking for some reason, you know, but my brother said, yeah, well, you're, you're the clever one of the family. And my brother, my brother is, my brother's in, incredibly clever. And he's, uh, I said, no, you're the clever one. And, and we went off on this, this like 20 minute argument about which one of us is cleverest. And then at the end, my brother turned and said, can you believe that we're just having, we've just had a, a conversation about which one of us is clever in, cleverest in front of a brain surgeon? It's like, <laughs> you know, it's like rocket scientists, brain surgeons. It's, it's the epitome. It's, it's who we call, we call out when we're talking about people being clever. And we're mm-hmm. having this stupid conversation about it. Um, but yeah, we, we, we got it all booked and the, you know, the, we prepared as men- mentally as, as well as possible for, you know, for going in and having the surgery. And I mean, that's, that's when I actually started to get a little bit scared. I, you know, we, we got the, the conversation that, you know, that it's possible that you don't even wake up. Um, it's possible that they, that things are going to, they're going to go wrong. And it's actually, it, it's very common to hear people that have the, the type of tumor that I had, um, with, you know, that they, they end up either blinded or paralyzed to a degree. Um, just, I think uh, shortly after, I think I was still in hospital, the doctor came in and, and he told us that he just lost a patient with the same, um, the same tumor. Um, I should say as well, before I, before I forget to mention it, that I was incredibly fortunate that this type of tumor is rarely malignant. It was, it was, um, it wasn't cancerous. So although it's, it sounds really a lot scarier than it is, um, I didn't have to go through any cancer treatment. It was, it was a basically, a, um, what do you call it? Benign. Um, mm-hmm. so it, it wasn't, uh, that was, that was a huge, um, thing in, in my favor. Um, but yeah, we, we got the surgery booked and, you know, we, I actually, one of the most, um, emotional moments was I, I'd, I'd never made a will. And so I actually wrote out a will and had my brother and his wife sign as, um, as, you know, the, what is it, what they call it? Witnesses. Mm-hmm. And then I actually, I actually spoke it out in Japanese onto my phone so that they'd got, a, people had, had got a, uh, a a record of what was going off, and that was quite a, you know, as I was reading that out and and recording mm-hmm. it, that was that was quite an emotional moment. Um, but yeah, I mean, the actually, you know, the the strangest thing is the the first time I actually cried when, you know, it was it was partly through fear, but the first time I actually cried was when I realised I'd not been to Africa yet. I I one of I had a bucket list and. Um, didn't think at the time that I was going to actually be, become a real bucket list, but I'd, already, I'd always said to people that I, wa- I'd, I wanted to go to Antarctica, Iceland, and Africa. And I was on the way back from Antarctica when the when the fit started, but I'd still not been to Africa and Iceland. And that was actually the first time that I actually pr- broke down and cried about the fact that I was maybe going to not even come out of the surgery. Um, because you know, I realized that I'd not stood on the red soil of Africa and looked out across the savannah, and that was something that I, I really felt that I needed to do before I died. Wow. So you were far more concerned about the things that you still wanted to do and the life that you still had to live yeah. than the possessions that you had to worry about leaving behind. Exactly, yeah. I mean, the, you can't take any of it with you, but I think that the, you know, the fact that there's so much that we, can, that we need to do, do with this life while we're here and 
you know the the regret of not doing something i think is is far greater than the regret of having done something that didn't go quite as well as you'd hoped well that's great advice and i've heard your podcast so i know what happens next but before we get there i'm just gonna have to wait and i'd love to hear the rest of the story to that point okay what what i did um i you know we went into the sur- to the surgery um the doctor they asked me what music i would like to pl- what i would like to play and i i've actually got a really terrible memory i i i forget what i even asked for i forget listening to the music um i do remember them starting to sedate me and then you know they do the old you count to five and you won't make five and i think i made like two and then i'm, I'm out um wow. and then i came around and the doctor said um said to me, you know, he was standing over me when I, when I came, came, at, came back, you know, when I regained consciousness, they pulled all of the pipes out, the things that block in your throat and everything. And I, uh, he's, st- he's standing there saying, I'm sorry. And I, I'm the first thing I did, I knew before I, I went to, went into the, you know, under the sedation, I, I thought the first thing I'm going to do is move my fingers and toes and make sure I'm not paralyzed. And so the doctor came straight over and standing over me, telling me he was sorry. And I, here's me like opening and closing my fingers and toes and saying, whatever you're sorry for, don't worry about it. I still can move my fingers and toes. And, <laughs> and he's, he's like, well, we couldn't get it all out. Um, oh. And I, so I said to him, well, you know, what, what's, what's wrong? You know, what's still in there? And he said, well, the thing is, is we, we were about, I think, five and a half hours into the surgery and they i was bleeding really badly and he said that if we'd have gone in that there was a bit left basically the cyst that i talked about earlier this is this is the early the thing that i heard initially the cyst that that was like um, golf ball size thing sticking up into my right, right side of my brain um he said that they were trying to get at that but i was bleeding really badly and if i'd have lost any more blood i would have needed a blood transfusion and he said that it was also highly possible that in trying to get that that cyst out that they would have cut something and damaged some areas that they they believe would have either blinded me or paralyzed me and so i said uh, well okay so it sounds like you made the right decision what's the next course of action and he said well i'm pretty sure that we can get rid of that cyst with medication um and uh, it, it turns out though i didn't know this at first but it turns out that you know the root of the of the tumor is also still in there um and so i don't know if he didn't tell me that initially because he didn't want to concern me or you know what what it was but over the over the the course of the following year or so within three months the the cyst was like um it was almost golf ball size when when they left it in um after three months it was about the size of maybe a baby's little finger sticking up into my brain and then three months after that, so six months after the surgery, and it, it had pretty much disappeared. Um, but then during the, the following few years, you know, over the next few years, we, I've been for MRIs. I went for them six, after six months after that, and now we're doing them yearly. Um, but you can actually still see a little bit of something in there, and it turns out that that's the, that's the tumor that's left, part of the tumor that's left. Um, wow. But they, you know, like I say, it's not cancerous, and they... The medication that I'm taking, although it sort of makes me a little bit drowsy sometimes, I, you know, I'm, it's keeping the prolactin levels down, and it's prolactin that was that was actually making all this happen. I was apparently you're supposed to have a prolactin count of one or two, uh, and you know the mac at most uh, it shouldn't be much more than a hundred. And I was my prolactin count when they found the tumor was I think it was um, seventeen thousand. Um, and so you know. I mean, and prolactin is actually the, it's the hormone that makes mothers make, make breast milk. So if I'd got the parts, I would probably be making three or four pints a day. But I, uh, you know, it was instead it just decided to build a tumor. So I, uh, the, the, over the following, like, like I say, six months or so, we watched the tumor, or the cyst pretty much disappear. The tumor's still there, but has no, it's not, it can't, it's not got the energy or anything to do anything. It's just sitting there. Um, but from, I actually went for a blood test last week. The prolactin reacted to the, to the medication. We increased the dose a few times, but it, we got it down to 
as of last week, 175, I think it was. And the doctor says that, you know, as long as it, we wanted to get it below 100, but as long as the, as long as it doesn't start to go up, then we're, we're in good shape. So I, uh, I'm now sort of got this little bit of worry in the back of my mind that something could grow back. The doctor seems very confident that it won't. And I trust him, you know, I trusted him with my life. I might as well continue to do that. So I, I want to, I want to just feel positive that something, you know, isn't going to go wrong. And I'm definitely living my life as though it isn't. You know, I, I was in Africa within a year of, of getting out of the hospital. Um, oh, I, in fact, I was just on my way back from, from Namibia just before the, year, the first anniversary. I had, a few months after that, I did an Iceland tour. So, you know, the, I, I basically travel with tours. I, I do workshops and tours with where I'll take a group of photographers and they, um, you know, we, we work this, the location together. So Africa, I did it with a, a, a great friend of mine uh, called Jeremy Woodhouse. Uh, he, he'd got a tour set up and asked me if I'd like to go along. So I went, I went with him and helped, helped him with his group. And the, the Iceland tour, I, again, I, I mean, I was very fortunate. I was just sitting there wondering who I could figure out to, to do a tour with. And a German guy that lives in Iceland named Tim Fulmer, he emailed me and said, Martin, do you want to do a tour in Iceland? I'm like, okay, <laughs> let's get this set up. So, wow. so the year after I'd, um, I'd had the surgery, I'd done my other two bucket list countries. And the, I'm going back to Iceland in, in uh, just over two months now. And I'm going back to Namibia in um, 2015. So, you know, that things, are, things are going really well. It's not, it's not slowed me down. And it's probably made me stronger in many ways. Wow, that's so amazing to hear. The first thing that I can think of is that you're such a positive, strong person when you're telling us that you woke up and the first thing the doctor said is, I'm sorry, mm. and you told him you did a good job and, you know, what can we do next? Yeah. Um, I can't say I know a lot of people that, that can be like that right away, so I think that's very amazing. Well, I'm, I've, I've often said in, in, in jest you know, I, that I'm, a, I'm a, um, a, terminal, a terminal optimist. I, I really, I, I don't know. I, I don't, I like to just think, actually, you know, I was going to say, I like to think of on, think of things on the bright side. It's not that I like to, I'm not trying to, I just do. I'm, I'm literally a, I, I have my moments. I get, I get scared and I get anxious. And, you know, there are times of, over the last few years where I've been thinking, you know, although I'm really enjoying what I'm doing, I'm still not out of the woods as far as getting the the business going. I'm, you know, we're we're in profit. We're we're making money to, to keep. I'm, I'm not dipping into my uh, dipping into my savings anymore to live. But you know, I, I gave a, a really good job in to do this. And I there are times when I get anxious about that. There are times when I think, you know, what if this thing does grow back? And I and I normally get anxious now on the yearly anniversary when I we go back and have another MRI. And I just love to see the thing. Um, you know, not there. There's nothing in the in my head. So, I. Yeah. Um, but apart from those moments, I'm I'm pretty I'm pretty much an optimistic person. I I like to I like to see the the good things in. You know, it's, it's not at the moment that there's a lot of stuff on this planet that you know there's problems in Syria, in um, in Israel, Egypt. Um, you know, there's a whole bunch of places where there's a lot of suffering going on. So I'm un, I'm under no um, you know, no delusions that the world is, is a wonderful place or anything like that. I think we've got a lot of problems that we need to fix. But, you know, in, in my immediate vicinity, I like to I like to just think of things on the bright side. Well, I think that that is absolutely wonderful. Yeah. Well, I would love if you'd share your story with us about Africa. Um, well, Africa is is one of those places that it's, you know, there's again, there's a huge gap between the wealthy and the poor. And we, one of the things that really struck me was that probably the poorest people there seemed like the happiest in many ways. Uh, you know, I was in the cities. There, there are, are young teenagers, young men that come up and ask for money, and if you don't give it them, you get a mouthful of, of abuse. Um, you know, one guy came over, asked us, asked us for some money with a big smile on his face, trying to sell us something that we didn't need. And when I said no, he's like, well, get out of my country and all of this. So I'm thinking, okay, yeah, fine. Um, but then 
you know, the, the people that are struggling to get money are seem to be the ones that are in the, you know, the worst place to be in in, in life. And the ones we went to visit uh, some Himba villages, which are there are a nomad, semi-nomadic um, tribes that basically they they live in um, uh, basic mud huts. Really, They've, it's got, it's actually a really really high level, highly structured society. They've got a lot of beliefs and that you know they're, they're really they really are a, a wonderful people to to visit and to talk to but they they almost don't believe believe in money you know they they take they take money from us because they you know we actually what we do is we give via the uh, the guides that we work with we pay a little bit that goes to the the head of the the tribe um, and he uses it for the for the good of the tribe hopefully um, but they they need money because they have to take their children to hospitals and the hospitals need money um, but apart from that they they live a very simple life that you know a very highly structured social um, like strata there and the way they actually um, you know live and and react uh, you know what's the word I forget the word I'm looking for but you know they they don't they never bath they uh, or never never bathe they basically they um, they purify themselves by sitting in a hut full of smoke. Uh, the w- okay. the women uh, grind ochre stones and they uh, they make like a, a a reddish paste that they smear on the skin, and that's basically to keep away the keep keep um, parasites off, but also to protect them from the sun. And they uh, but they're a beautiful people, you know. They and they they just uh, got a really beautiful outlook on life, and they're the ones that are, that have the least. And like I say, the ones that are in the cities trying to make money to keep to keep um, their heads above water are they seem to be the meanest in many ways. And so I, I don't think that possessions are necessarily the things that that hold us together as a person as a people. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, I mean I've I've got enough camera gear to feed probably three or four families for a few years um, out there, and and I, you know, obviously I mean money monetarily they wouldn't be eating my cameras, but they uh, <laughs> but the, you know it's. It, it puts things in perspective, but you know. Also, I I just wanted to wanted to stand on that red soil and and be in there in Namibia with the beautiful sand dunes and the you know the, all of the colour um, that someone told me before I went that once you get the the dust of Africa in your blood you'll never be able to stay away. And so the the first thing that I started to do when I got back was figure out where my next Africa trip would be. Um, but I'm I'm actually I'm more as far as photography is concerned, I'm more a, a cold, a cold, uh, cold weather person. I, I prefer Iceland uh, in many ways because it's just, it's a really rugged landscape. Um, and I, one of my main tours that I do are actually winter tours here in Japan, and they're colder than Antarctica. You know, you, we, we've, I've spent now, been back to Antarctica three times since we, uh, since that first uh, voyage. So I mean I love Antarctica as well. They're, they're all incredibly special places, um, and I, I feel very fortunate to to actually be able to go. And I actually, um, the I think after my, it was probably the last year, I put a CD together, a DVD for Dr. Jokey at the hospital, um, to to basically show him the places that he'd given me the opportunity to visit. Um, you know because without him I wouldn't have wouldn't have been able to go, gone to any of them. Um, so I. I'd, I'd been back to Antarctica because he saved my life. And um, the, actually, you know what? I'm just thinking about it. The other thing that I wanted to mention, the friend in Australia that told me to go to the hospital, I, when mm-hmm. I got home after that first day, I emailed him and told him that we'd, we'd found this brain tumor. And he said, I know. I, know that, I knew that that was what it was. And he actually explained to me everything that was going to happen to me after after the surgery and he told me that there was possible that I wouldn't be able to I'd lose my sense of smell and you know my eyesight might not be as good as as good as it would would be uh, as good as it had been and you know he told me basically everything that was going to happen um he wasn't right about the smell I I actually my sense of smell came back um fine and my eyesight was actually perfect for about 3 months when I got out of the hospital I 
and I sat in the taxi, put my glasses on for the first time in a week. And I've got very weak prescription glasses. They're, they're mm. the, you know, the lenses are only, I'm almost able to drive without glasses. I, my eyesight's not that bad at all. But I put the glasses on in the taxi on the way home and everything went blurred. And I thought, hang on, well, that's, that's wrong. And I took them off and I could see perfectly without my glasses for the first time since wow. I was 19. Um, and we, we figured out later, over the course of three months, they gradually went back to probably a little bit better than they were before the surgery. Um, but what had happened was the, all of the pressure that, uh, well, that, you know, your, eye, your, your vision goes off when your lens doesn't focus the image at exactly the right, part, the right point on the back of your eye. And what had happened was the pressure that had either built up or been relieved behind my nose um, allowed my eyeballs to change shape very slightly. And it actually focused my eyes perfectly. I, I could see leaves on trees on the horizon for, for the first time ever. Um, oh, wow. But that, that gradually went away. And so now my eyesight's probably a little bit better than it was before the surgery. So apart from the fact that my, my friend didn't get it right about the, my sense of smell and eyesight, um, the, apart, the, the reason that he didn't get that right was because the doctors did such a great job. You know, they, they actually have to peel away all of the um the your your smell sensors are stuck to stuck to certain skin in your nose and they they peel that away to get in and then it can be damaged um but they wow. did they did such a good job that that just didn't happen um so you know the the doctors were incredible um i i i was fortunate to be surrounded by some very very um you know kind and and helpful family and just feel very fortunate to be here and thank goodness you had that friend in Australia so that it didn't end up going any longer than it had to before you got the help, eh? Yeah, uh, he, he's, he's as responsible for saving my life as Dr. Jokey, so I, uh, I really am. And, you know, and unfortunately that guy, um, yeah, it's okay now, but we, they found out that his wife had cancer um, last year and she's been through some grueling therapy, uh, you know, radiation and stuff, and... They've just got the all clear. She's been more than three months without any traces now. So we're, it's, it's all coming back around. They're, they're in Africa. Uh, he's taking his whole family to Africa next, uh, next month. So we, everything's going good for them too. But we had a scary moment there as well. Thank goodness. Do you find it hard to watch people that are close to you go through it just the same as going through it yourself? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I cried like a baby when I found out that his wife had, had got cancer. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I, it was more, obviously, I mean, I, I haven't actually met his wife in person. We, we've communicated and we, we almost feel like family. Um, the, the friend that I'm talking about, we've traveled together a lot and he, he's almost like a brother to me. And so it was more the thought that he might lose someone that is, is so special to him. Um, mm. But, you know, it is hard. I think it makes, it gives you a more, a higher appreciation of, of uh, the frailty of our existence. And I, I think, although I've always been one for making the most of life and, and I've always been a positive person, I think that I definitely have, I've become more receptive to the suffering of others and uh, I think that you know it, it would be it would be great if more people could have that outlook on life. You know, you, you see scenes of people causing suffering on on any level, um, and I think sometimes you know that you know why can't we just get over all of this and just try to be a little bit nicer to each other? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, the photographers I have in my life that follow you mm. tell me that you've touched a lot of people with your photography and the photo walks that you do. Um, have you heard any stories from people along those lines? I, I'm lucky, very lucky that I was able. I, I started my my photography podcast in. Uh, it's been nine years now. I just released episode 430, and I through that I have managed to reach a lot of people. And I've never been, um, never been one for hiding stuff away. My my wife's sometimes horrified. My, the Japanese are a little bit more secretive sometimes with their personal lives, but mm -hmm. I I just open it all up and I tell people everything that's going off. And so I think that the the way I've approached my podcast and my blog is 
partly that, partly behind why people tend to um, get such a connection with me. But I, I hear from people all the time that feel as though they know me. Um, I've, I've heard from people. I mean, your, even your email last week really touched me. Um, I've got to admit, I actually, uh, I was really struggling to, to not shed a tear as I read your email out to my wife. So I, uh, I felt, I feel really, really fortunate to be able to, to touch people's lives the way I have. Um, and even uh, on, a, on a, a, a lower sort of level, not lower, you know, on a different scale, I hear from people all the time about how they're inspired by my work and all of that. But the, the email that really touched me is when I've actually affected someone's life and, and had a positive, um, a, you know, become a positive force for that person. Okay, I'm going to need a minute to recover. You're making me teary eyed. Oh, Thank you sorry. so much. Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. Um, I, I know you don't like uh, to praise yourself too much, um, but I just think it's amazing that you have touched so many people. And I just, I'm wondering, you always have, but if this experience has perhaps allowed you to do more so of that? Um, you know, I, I've tried to think of, of things that really you know, this, this and this that have changed. And I, I think that it's rather than changing me as as much a, uh, as in I can actually pinpoint where, it's really just heightened my senses. Um, and like I said, I mean, it, make, it makes you appreciate uh, everything around you a lot more. And I, I, the reason I don't see that as a total like about face type change is that I've always been appreciative of, of what I what I have, where I am in life, and how I'm I'm able to to help others. But I, I definitely feel as though my experience has enabled me to really um, really come appreciate that a lot more, um, really be able to put everything into perspective. And I, I think that the fact that we're we're here in the in this present time present moment in time is a bit of a miracle in itself but i feel as though the you know be, being able to appreciate it this much makes me makes my life a lot richer than it would be i think oh, well thank you for sharing that down to the last two questions here um you've told us that your family your friends were very supportive just wondering if you have any books that you could recommend that may have helped you get through this experience for anybody else that could be going through this you know, I, I haven't. I don't know of any of any books that I read myself that uh, to help me get through. There, well, I, there weren't there weren't any books. I didn't find any. I, you know, I'm I'm so. I don't want this to sound conceited, but I'm I'm often so confident in the way I on my own outlook. I don't always seek the advice of others and um, perhaps sometimes to my detriment but i i just feel as though if i can deal with an emotion or a feeling or a concern myself i generally don't look elsewhere for help with that um but since then i i've actually uh, i've got a, a very good friend david dusherman he's uh, he's a best-selling writer and a, a uh, he calls himself, obviously he is, but one of the things he has in his profile is a, a world humanitarian photographer. Um, David is, he actually had a near-death experience around the time, pretty much the same time as I was in hospital having my um, my tumour removed. And we became, we, we knew we knew of each other, we'd, we'd conversed a few times, but we actually became really good friends. And we... He came on my podcast and we formed the Almost Dead Poets Poet Society. No, sorry, the Almost Dead <laughs> Almost Dead Photographers Society. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, we became really good friends. And David has actually just released a book. It's his first book that that isn't illustrated with ph photographs. He's, a, he's an amazing photographer, um, and he's you know most of his books so far have been more about photography and the business of it, um, and you know and the creative side, um, but. He's just released a book called uh, "The Beauti or A Beautiful Anarchy," and this is a book that I feel, if I if I was aware of it at the time, I would have probably read it, and it probably would have blown my mind. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, you know, I mean, I, I actually I read a copy um, just before it was actually finished, and I it's I'm not a fast reader. I I didn't read it a lot as a kid, and the result is that. 
it's actually quite a long and arduous task for me to <coughs> excuse me it's a long and arduous task for me to actually sit down and read a book but I read um, A Beautiful Anarchy in one day and it really is an amazing book and it's it's not just about um, the about living it's it's not closely related to photography it's more about living a creative life and giving yourself permission to do that um, and there are you know we, we're in the interview that you mentioned earlier when we were talking about a beautiful anarchy um, mm. David and I um, that he touched on a lot of things in that interview things that aren't even in the book that really um, really hit home a lot of a lot of things that we sh- the way we should be thinking about stuff. I mean, I'm I'm confident in my own way to to think through things and and basically live live my life the way I feel I should live it. But David is so eloquent, and the way he writes this stuff, it's like my my confidence is like a a chest of drawers with with everything uh, thrown in and and all jumbled up, and then just close the drawer. <laughs> and, and David, what, what David does is he takes or helps me to take everything out, fold it up, organize it and put it back where, exactly where it should be. And so, you know, the, 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 the words that David wrote in that book, I think, would help anyone going through, you know, not, so, not just a traumatic experience. I think that it, it just gives you, even if you're, you're perf- perfectly healthy, you've, got, you've had no... Um, experiences that that could have you know threatened your life it doesn't really matter. I think anyone that reads that book is going to going to put it down and just go wow. And nine times out of ten, I think people are going to want to make changes in their lives because of the, a lot of the stuff that David wrote in that book. Um, and the interview was was actually he he touched on a lot of things that that really expanded on it as well. Oh, Martin, I've listened to that interview three times to be honest with you. <laughs> Thanks. It's one of the best ones I've heard and there's so much just free amazing information just in that interview and I immediately got the book I'm just starting it now and I agree with you it's going to be a really good book yeah yeah it's it really is amazing I'm I'm I hope let me know what you think when you've when you've finished it it's uh but um yeah hopefully you'll you'll be able to talk with David as well um on on your podcast because I'm sure he's got a lot to talk about like I said he, he had his experience as well just at the same time Excellent. Well, I, I would love that. Thank you so much for putting my name to him. No, not at all. Um, so before we say goodbye, I'm just wondering if there is any parting words or guidance you would like to leave and where people can find you if they would like to connect with you. Um, as far as guidance, I mean, I'm not sure I'm qualified to, to offer it, but I, I think that at, from my own experience, um, you know, things can get really scary sometimes, and especially if if for someone that's had a, a, a near-death experience, I mean, I don't even feel, honestly, I don't feel as though I had a near-death experience. I feel as though I was in, I was in a situation where I could have died, but it didn't feel like that. Um, and I think that part of that is because of my outlook on life. And I think that if people can, can remain positive, obviously you need to do certain things. If you're in a situation where you need surgery, you need to find the best surgeon you can find. And that's easy to say from somewhere. Some, I mean, Japanese um, hospitals and things, they, they cost a fair amount of money. It, I actually, it, it cost me, I think, um, $13,000 to have my surgery done. But the Japanese system is, is su- such a way that they, you get like 80% of that back. Um, hmm. and, and I know that a lot of countries don't have that luxury. You, um, you know, in the States, I know that you've got to make sure that you've got good insurance i actually didn't have any insurance at all all i had is the the standard japanese um like national health insurance um luckily that does if if you go over two thousand dollars um for any treatment they they pay you 80 percent of the of the cost back um and i know that there's a lot of countries that that isn't Mm -hmm. the case and so it's unfortunate that our lives are in the hands of politicians but that that really is the case in a lot of countries. Um, so you know, I think that you have to try to get the best help you can. Um, but I know that saying that is also a really spiteful thing to say to some people. If if you're in a situation where your your country is is not providing the help that you need. Um, yes. 
but you know the as far as the actual medical help concerned you know that's that's something that is is going to be out of a lot of our controls but i think you know just stay open to to the fact that if if something's going to go wrong it's probably going to go wrong anyway um i'm a mm-hmm. i'm a big believer in fate and i i think that you know there i'm not saying any any uh higher higher force or higher higher um being is is looked down and said martin you're it's not it's not so you know you it's too soon for you to come up here i i yeah. think that you know i'm not sure that that's what i'm thinking but what i'm what i think is is that we there is something that guides um our our time here and i think that probably if it's your time it's your time and you'll you'll move on to the next phase whatever that is um when it happens but if it's not just just learn from the experience uh let it make you stronger and and just you know live live as good a life as you can because it's it's very frail you never know when it's going to get snatched away from you oh that's such good parting words thank you thank you where where is it that people can connect with you um, i'm sure they're going to want to oh uh, well it mostly photography but all of you know the if you search for brain tumor then then the uh you'll find my posts from around that time but uh, martinbaileyphotography.com is where everything's you know everything's up there my whole life really for the last uh, last nine years is up there excellent well i will make sure that that is in the show notes along with the book that we've talked about and everything here today thank you very much gina it's been a pleasure speaking with you oh it's been a pleasure speaking with you thank you so much for sharing your experience with us and taking the time to be on the show not at all my pleasure i am part of a mastermind and it has really helped me grow in business and personally i would like to thank our sponsor who keeps the show going I personally recommend Valerie Growth. If you want to take your second chance to the next level, she offers masterminds focusing on various topics ranging from entrepreneurship, business, to goal setting, accountability, mindset, and confidence. You can find her at www.inspirationwithval.com as well as in the show notes at everydayisasecondchance.com. Now back to our show. I really enjoyed listening to Martin's story. I am inspired to keep thinking positive and start traveling. I would like to share a review of a podcast I love to listen to. It is called The School of Greatness with Lewis Howes. Lewis is such an inspiring person and shares great interviews that inspire personal growth. Following his social media, he is always challenging... Following his social media, he is always challenging himself to learn new things and help many people to achieve their own greatness. Everything that you hear here is in the show notes, and this podcast is now on iTunes. If you like what you hear, please leave a rating or review and help me get it out there to the people that need it. Have a great week, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to Second Chance Radio. Personal stories of near-death experiences, the journey, and beyond. For the most positive and uplifting time on the radio. So tune in again with your host, Gina Kane of Second Chance Radio. Second Chance Radio. Second Chance Radio.